welcome to Docupied, a podcast about anime, manga, light novels, and industry news. I'm your host, Brandon, otherwise known as DocPay. Let's jump right into the news roundup for this episode. Been a little while, but we have a couple updates on some things that were delayed. First up, G-Kids is actually canceling their Children of the Sea theatrical screening. Initially, I think it was scheduled for April or so, and then, you know, the world imploded. And then they pushed it back, supposedly, to August, and things aren't looking like August is doable either. So they've just canceled the screenings. And this is probably for the best, considering all the safety measures and whatnot. But they will be releasing the film still on on Blu-ray, DVD, and I'm sure it'll be available digitally. Love Me, Love Me Not film will now be opening on September 18th, it looks like, in Japan after it was delayed. And Skate Leading Stars uh, anime series has been rescheduled to January. So, as expected, a bunch of things are continuing to be impacted and will continue to be impacted by various things. Rail Romanesque TV anime series, which is based on a game called Maitetsu, will be premiering in October. Netflix announced it will be premiering the third season of Agretzko on August 27th, and I love the first two seasons, so I'm pretty excited to see more and jump back into it. Netflix also announced they will be streaming Wit Studios' Great Pretender, finally, on August 20th. This is another one of those series that they licensed and locked in jail until they get around to dubbing it or whatever, and so then they finally release it. So the usual nonsense with their licenses rather than originals. Speaking of Netflix, IT Media recently did an interview with Teromi Nishi, and I'm also reading this from the Anime News Network coverage of it, but generally the message of the interview was discussing Netflix and what their kind of piles of cash are bringing to the table for ground-level workers in the anime industry, and essentially her answer is nothing. While their budgets, she says, may be two or three times higher than a traditional uh, series funded through the production committee method, all that money just goes straight into the pockets of the various production companies and really never makes it down to the actual animators, and so nothing shifts or changes at all with a higher budget from the perspective of an animator. In essence, it's really not that different than the current system where the production committee finances things and then contracts out the work to actually make the show to an anime production company, like a studio, and they get paid fixed rates for their work, you know, plus possibly some cut of sales or merch licenses, stuff like that. But regardless, generally speaking, the production committee is comprised of various investors in the series, and so they invest in money, and that all that goes into making it. It's all the various parts that goes into that, and they also get money out according to generally what they invested in, but also it just depends on the production committee itself. Regardless, all of this means is that whether Netflix 
is financing it or production committees are financing it and how much budget is actually being thrown at a series, none of that makes its way to the lower levels of the actual industry. So the animators, all the staff at animation production companies, people who are actually making the series, nothing will shift for them because they get paid fixed rates for their work. And for all the companies who invest in on the production committees or, you know, Netflix, it's in all of their best interests, as it is for any large company, essentially, to undercut and underpay all of their employees, the people who actually do the labor and make the work. So is anyone surprised that higher budgets from Netflix don't actually translate to more livable wages for employees and animators? Nope. No. Definitely not. Not remotely a surprise. It just means more money for the companies. Maybe one day that actually means more money for the employees, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I mean, in the first place, many anime series, actual IPs, belong to the production committees. And so the, the animation studios have no real say, have no real control or power, generally speaking. There's a few exceptions to this rule. Kyoto Animation is known for producing uh, and being on the production committees of many of their works. So they own the IPs. They base them off of novels submitted through their competitions, things like that. A good example is like Violet Evergarden. But they still may take on contracts for series that they don't control. But for something like Kyoto Animation, that was actually on the more rare side in comparison. Anyway, all of that kind of wrapping up to just that while Netflix and other players like Amazon or even like Crunchyroll's original initiatives, all of that stuff where they're bringing in foreign money uh, outside sources of funding, that money itself isn't changing the fundamental structure and system in place of making anime in Japan. They're just bringing more money in and so more money is being given to these investors and production committees and companies. Now, you could argue that that's a positive because it's, it is paying for more anime. But on the other hand, realistically, it's not making any tangible changes to, like I said, the people on the ground level. So maybe it takes a lot more money to make those kind of changes. I don't know. Fans don't really have a lot of recourse here. You can complain about this all you want. You can, you know, threaten to pull your subscription from various services all you want, but production committees and the system they have in place isn't going to change due to fan-based initiatives. And it's not going to change when a big company comes in and throws a bunch of money around either. Well, anyway, moving on from that downer news to some even more downer news. We have uh, a couple updates to the story from last week about Amazon removing a number of titles from their Kindle store. Since then, a couple developments have happened in this kind of ongoing saga, I guess. So I'll talk about some of the updates. I'll try and keep it brief. I don't want to retread a lot of what I said last episode, but there's some new stuff anyway. So I guess two main things occurred since last time. The first one is that Australia is pulling some classic Australian nonsense, and this nutcase politician that seems to have 
significantly too much time on their hands, decided to send a complaint about supposed child pornography, which is ridiculous, to Kinokuniya for selling uh, a list of seven manga series. Uh, actually, it includes light novels, I believe. I don't. I'm actually not sure or super clear on whether it is the novel versions or the manga versions. Seems like possibly the manga. Well, anyway, the list of them are Eromanga Sensei, Sword Art Online, Goblin Slayer, No Game No Life, Inside Mari, Parallel Paradise, and Dragon R Academy. So, for clarity's sake, several of these are somewhat fanservice series, but to equate them to real child pornography is absolute nonsense. I'm not gonna get too deep into that. I don't need to start any arguments. I don't need to get into a discussion over the classification of art as anything other than art. But anyway, the point being that the store actually removed those seven series and a number of those overlap with some of the things that Amazon and then after that Book Depository, which Amazon owns, ended up removing from their Kindle store. Uh, specifically, Aramanga Sensei, No Game No Life. This could be completely unrelated. The timing seems a bit suspect that these things happen kind of one after another. One can only speculate whether there is any correlation there. I'm not necessarily convinced that there is, but you never know. The, the same groups could be pushing efforts across multiple fronts to accomplish this same thing, so who knows? Again, I don't want to peddle in conspiracy theories here, but those two things did happen in close proximity, so that's all. Similarly, J Novel Club brought up on Twitter, and it's been discussed in their forums, that they also had books removed from Kobo, specifically How Not to Summon a Demon Lord, the light novel. This is interesting. I mean, Kobo is owned by Rakuten, which is a Japanese company. However, this isn't the first time they've actually done this. Uh, apparently, in the past, they've been rather difficult with regards to Seven Seas imprint Ghost Ship, which is a largely fan service based line. That's the point of it. So they publish things like To Love Rue, and anyone who knows anything about that series knows it is a fan service series. So there's some nonsense about them getting complaints about these books, and it could be just related to how they are tagged. Uh, J Novel Club, in their specific case, clarified that Kobo gave specific reasoning for why their novels were removed, and that reasoning was actually A, because there were complaints about them, and B, because of the fan service. So I guess those are the same point. There were complaints about the fan service, no A, B. Um, and the books are now back online on Kobo. What J Novel Club did to address this was, this is where the AB comes in, I guess, A, tagged the series as erotica, and B, moved the color insert pages to the back of the book instead of the front. So like I mentioned, this was one of the theories or one of the uh, suggestions that you saw come up a lot for Amazon, that they try and move the color inserts to the back. That won't help a cover page that's equally fan service, but a lot of the color pages for the series that were removed were definite fan service. Like nothing 
explicit, but you have nude characters in color in the front. And I guess that shows up in the preview for these books, and who knows what Amazon's AI reviewers made of that, or maybe they received complaints about it just like Kobo did, and decided, they're gone. Like I said, it's a lot of speculation at this point on Amazon's case, but for Kobo, they're back up, and it just took moving the color inserts to the back of the book, just literally to make sure they don't show up in previews, and also tagging the books as erotica, which for something like How Not to Summon a Demon Lord, yeah, I mean, that's fair. As long as things are tagged appropriately so that people can uh, filter or understand what they are at a glance, like, that doesn't bother me at all. It's because they're removed, like, from Amazon without any reasoning, despite the fact that they sell erotica in other places. Like, like porn isn't evil. There's no reason it shouldn't be able to be purchased by adults on these platforms, as long as it is appropriately labeled. Really, that's all that matters. Like, age-gate it and put a label on it. Uh, which actually just reminded me that there was actually a third thing that happened... Uh, somewhat tangentially related to this. It only reminded me just now for some reason, but uh, Faku actually had a number of their books removed from Amazon as well. Similarly, given no reasoning, but considering their books are actual porn, I'm assuming it's that's the reason. I'm not sure how they go about publishing their works on Amazon Kindle. I'm not sure how they classify their works in the bookstore. But I would assume that it's all tagged as porn for adults. So, like I said, as long as all these things are properly categorized and recognizable, like, why does Amazon, as a platform or as a distributor, have a problem with content like porn? Or even just something, you know, tame like fanservice. So, yeah, in general, it's pretty ridiculous that these platforms are removing these series for whatever reasons they are doing them. Something like Kobo's case, where they're able to get them resubmitted for publication by moving the images to the back and adding a new label to the series. Like, that's harmless in essence, so it's good that they were clear and were able to resolve that quickly. But all of this is just bad news for fans of manga, light novels, or hentai even. Like, it shouldn't be increasingly difficult to get your hands on this content legally. Like, let's not go back to making it more difficult to actually support and purchase these products, please. Just to reiterate from last episode, your options for purchasing things as an alternative to Amazon, if you are an avid consumer of Jane Alvo Club published light novels or manga, it is recommended and easiest to simply purchase them directly from J Novel Club. They don't lose any cut from the, the various platforms, so more money goes into their hands and the hands of the author. If you don't want to maintain a premium subscription, you can simply become a member for one month, buy a bunch of credits for ebooks, buy all the books you want, and let that run out. And then you can do that again the next time you want a bunch of uh, ebook credits to buy some of their various releases with. So it's not that complicated. I do think it would behoove at this point, Jane Novel, to 
simply offer an option to publish their ebooks, sorry, to purchase their ebooks directly from them without needing to be a member first. There's clearly a, a level of demand for that and that they're aware of. I'm not here to suggest a good system to do that for them, but simply to reinforce that I think some people would like that. Some people that don't want to buy a subscription and then buy books, especially people who don't read like nearly as many of their series as like I do, who just maybe follow a handful or even one or two and just want those specific series. And that's totally understandable. Not everyone reads as much as I do. Otherwise, if you're looking to purchase books from other publishers uh, in ebook format, of course, this isn't necessarily discussing physical at all, but in ebook format, Google Play Books is there, Kobo is there. Even if Kobo has had similar situations where they've re removed series in the past, they are at the very least more clear about their policies and getting things reinstated. Then there's, like I said, Bookwalker. Bookwalker is a Japanese company, and they're quite clear on the fact that they're never going to remove any of these series. That is not going to be an issue for them. So if you want to shop with essentially as close to absolute confidence as you can, that nothing will be removed and you will be able to maintain a singular uh, collection of books on a singular platform, Bookwalker is likely your best bet. I'm pretty heavy into Google Play Books myself, so that's my preference. I know that they have some of their own issues. Each platform has kind of different levels of resolution for images and file sizes allowed, and so some allow for better than others. But I'll take a slightly more open platform that publishers are able to allow me to download DRM-free files of their books as opposed to a complete lockdown. But hey, like I said, you do you. There's several other options other than Amazon for ebooks. And if we're talking physical books, if you're in North America, there's obviously right stuff. You're outside of North America. I know Amazon was probably the biggest supplier there or Book Depository, which is also owned by Amazon. So I don't really have a good answer for you there. I'm not as familiar with the options, especially around the world. But I'm sure if you search, there's plenty of other people running into a lot of the same problems you are, and you might be able to find some good advice on that. But I can't help you on that one. That's going to wrap up the news roundup for this episode. I don't necessarily want this podcast to be all about covering like controversies and you know shit news and stuff like that, but because these are like highly relevant topics and things that are directly impacting people's ability to consume and read these works, it felt important enough to discuss. But like I said, generally speaking, I'm not here to like wade through all these controversies or, you know, jump headfirst into arguments about them. Not the point of the podcast. Most of the time I want to really try and talk about and cover things that I enjoy. So speaking of things I enjoy, here is your general spoiler warning. As usual, I won't be spoiling any specific plot or character developments within the story, but I will be talking in general about things that happened and the characters, so if you don't want to know anything at all about a series, you have been warned. So today, I thought after uh, last week, I talked about some anime adaptations for light novels that I really liked, and I thought I'd uh, 
talk about another anime series. Keep Your Hands Off Azoken aired uh, not last season, but the one before that, and I realized I never talked about it on the podcast. And since we're kind of in between seasons, we're like, we're a couple episodes into the new season, I thought I'd go and talk about something two seasons old. But really, because it is uh, finished now, I thought it was a good time to go back and talk about it. So Keep Your Hands Off Azoken is a 12-episode anime series by Sayan Saru, and it is directed by Masaki Yuasa. There's plenty of other talented staff that worked on this, but you and I don't have all day to sit here and read the whole staff list. It is based on a manga series by Sumito Owara, which will be soon released by Dark Horse Comics, so I'm very much looking forward to that. There are five volumes out in Japan currently, just for reference. So starting off, this series was probably my favorite. Keep Your Hands Off Azoken was probably my favorite show that aired in the winter season. There were a couple others that I actually really enjoyed, and maybe I'll talk about them on a future episode. But for me, Azoken really kind of had it all. This series is essentially Science Sadu kind of at their best. It's incredibly creative, dynamic, an absolute riot to watch. The characters are unique, they're interesting, well-written, and feel like real people. They don't come off as cardboard cutouts. This show is really like a burst of creativity. Every episode was filled to the brim with like creative ways of animating things, or the characters themselves being creative. Like It's just it's creativity through and through. The plot of Azoken, or the, the general kind of setup for it, is these three girls meet and end up forming a club, the Azoken, which I'm not sure why they leave it untranslated in the title, but it just means like film club. In essence, none of them wanted to join the like anime or manga clubs or art clubs, and especially one of the characters Mizusaki's circumstances didn't really allow her to, so these three nerdy friends, Asakusa, Kanamori, and Mizusaki, decide to start their own club, the Eizoken, to make anime. In every episode, we get glimpses into their creative process, into their creativity, and we get some really spectacular like showcases of animation and technique from Science Aru, used in scenes that are meant to portray uh, the creative process as Asakusa and Mizusaki are like collaborating, coming up with ideas on the fly, and Kanamori is also helping them refine it, come up with alternatives or you know make things work with their time or budgets or things like that. So all of them are coming together to have this like creative output session. It's like, well, what if we took this town I designed or, and then use, you know, your character. And while that's happening kind of in reality, I guess, within the show, what we're actually seeing is them like putting stuff together and then going off and flying through a city in this like bug like plane thing for example this is in like the first episode so this occurs in a bunch of episodes throughout the show of course but in their creative process we get to see them 
flying around in their kind of imagination, essentially. We're getting their imagination depicted and animated for us. So it's as if they're really flying around this city in this, you know, bug-like plane, and as they're tweaking things and changing things, you can see it happening. Or we see it later on when they're working on the robot short for the, you know, the robot club, and they're brainstorming, you know, fight choreography or weapons for the, the robot or the, the actual enemy, and you can see all of this kind of coming to fruition on the screen, and it's really, really cool. And then also, because they are making anime within the show, we get to see both their process and some of the results. We follow them along through their process of making it, you know, establishing backgrounds, animating the characters and the movement, doing the voiceovers. They eventually meet and include uh, Domeki, who as a member of the audio club, starts to provide them with sound effects, things like that. So you're getting both the creative process, and then we're also getting to see at the end of it, they end up making three different anime shorts, film, like anime short films. And so we get to watch them put them together in the show, and then we also get a glimpse of what they actually did make at the end of it. So you get to see it coming together, and then you get to see a portion of it completed. I think for the first two, or at the very least the first one, we get the entirety of it. But for the final work that they did, we definitely only get a, like a condensed portion or version of it. Obviously, they don't have time to run a 40-minute animated short in a 23-minute episode of anime, so we get kind of a condensed version. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, I guess, but the series is just like bursting with creativity in, in all ways. The staff behind it were very creative in depicting the creation of the anime, the actual anime they end up making themselves, and our main character's process of developing and their imagination and, like I said, developing the actual concepts and fleshing out the worlds that they're trying to then themselves go on to animate. The series is visually amazing. I was kind of constantly in awe of the work that Tsayantaru put in to animating so many of the scenes that they did. The way that they depicted a number of things were really fascinating. In one of the later episodes, for example, we get to see Domeki essentially recording and like modifying and editing audio, but it's, it's visualized in a really interesting way. All of that to say that, to me, this show was one of the most like visually creative and interesting that we've seen in a while. And that's not even touching on the fact that the characters themselves are really great. Our, our main trio, and then later on Domeki, but the main trio of Asakusa, Kanomori, and Mizusaki are this perfect balance of creative energy, hardcore realist, and like dedicated to her craft perfectionist. They form this like amazing harmony between them all, where that you always feel like if any one of them were missing, the series would just not be remotely as interesting. They all balance themselves out in this kind of yin-yang way, but in a trio, of course. Asakusa is just curious, creative, imaginative. 
She's always going off on tangents, thinking up new things, exploring, creating her own new worlds. Like, that's just her deal. She's always, always, always thinking of something new. Crazy idea. Mizusaki is somewhat of a perfectionist. Like, she's obsessed with character movement. She later kind of learns to express that instead of her parents, who were actors, and them wanting her to be an actor, she does her acting through her animation. The roles she plays are the characters she animates. You can see her performance in them. And I thought that was actually really cool. And then you have Konomori, the, the realist who focuses on you know money and deadlines. She kind of takes on the role of producer and reigns in the perfectionism and imagination run wild of the other two. She's constantly having to kind of keep them in line to make sure that they can meet deadlines that they get, to make sure that they actually earn a profit off what they're doing, or if not, they don't end up just like constantly losing money, and keeps them afloat and out of trouble with like the student council. She also pitches in on ideas sometimes. Like she helps them in their creative process to, you know, think about things in a different way. But her role there is to ground the other two. They're off soaring in the sky, and Konomori's got her feet firmly planted on the ground. That's, that's kind of the dynamic between them. And I feel like this is a real strength for this series. All three of these girls are unique. They have like defined, dedicated personalities. They have their own strong motivations for what they do, what they believe in, why they do the things they do. They're just very well-written and just fascinating characters to watch. And hilarious. Like, they are really funny together. They're all kind of nerdy idiots in their own way. And I really love our trio of idiots. Like, it's wonderful. All of their interactions are just so wholesome, amusing, funny. And sometimes they, they make real breakthroughs on, on more serious things. But they always stay together. They always come back to their goal of, of making animation together, of trying to make the best thing that they can with the time, money, and resources that they have. So for reference, they are all in high school, FYI. And so, like I said, it's the film Club, and that's what Azoken is. And so some of the plot puts them in conflict with the student council for various reasons, and kind of throughout the series they are the I wouldn't call them antagonists, but they're the ones that cause the most trouble and difficulty for our main trio, and are at odds with them most of the time. And so a lot of the kind of conflict stems either from the main trio trying to meet like deadlines and stuff, and, and actually complete the things that they're working on, the animation, or things that the like student council ends up trying to do. So it's a mix of like creative conflict versus like social conflict i don't want to call it like political because it's not like that but they come into conflict with the structure and the powers that be at their school which is the student council and some of the teachers but really the, the 12 episodes that we got of this story are just packed with fun exciting funny and occasionally you know quite moving moments in the story. This series is just endlessly creative, and every episode has some 
really cool, interesting showcase of animation from Science Auto. The series is like very wholesome, so this is something that you could easily recommend to functionally anyone. I would put this as a series that I could throw out to even people who don't watch anime, who don't understand it. This is a series that I could easily tell them like, hey, you know what, just go check out Keep Your Hands Off Azoken, and maybe you'll start to see what this whole anime thing is all about. It kind of reminded me, I don't know why it reminded me of this, but the opening and ending songs are also really awesome. Easy Breezy is easily one of the better uh, opening songs for a show recent in like recent years. It's so catchy, it's fun. The animation of them, you know, dancing like idiots is just always a pleasure to, to watch and see. And like I said, the song is just so catchy, it's stuck in my head. Like, even just saying the name of the song Easy Breezy, it's, it's instantly playing now through my head over and over again. I love it. And for those of you worried that, like, the manga, for example, is ongoing, you don't know whether to check out these 12 episodes or not, or if you're going to get more, it doesn't matter. While I haven't read the manga because I'm waiting for it to be you know, published, <laughs> released in English, uh, the first volumes, I think, coming out soon. But what I can tell you is that the anime series, at the very least, at 12 episodes, tells essentially a complete story. Now, I know the story isn't complete, but it has a very satisfying 12-episode arc. I obviously want more, but that doesn't mean that you won't be satisfied having seen just these 12 episodes. I obviously want more, and I want to read more of it, and I can't wait to read the manga. And this is one thing that I, I can't really comment on, is how different or how much license was taken with the adaptation here. I don't know, so I can't comment on that. But I'm very interested to find out, and I'll probably do another episode on the manga at a later date, once we get it released in English and I get my hands on the volume. But regardless, the, the point there is that for anyone who's like, does the story just kind of drop off and then tell you to like, hey, go read the manga if you want to know what happens next? No, it's not like that. The series, yes, there is some overarching plot stuff, but really these 12 episodes serve as start to end a, a solid, more or less wrapped up like story arc. So so you definitely don't have to like sit and wait for additional seasons or just like ignore this because there's still more manga to go. It's not that kind of work. It's not that kind of story. I think I'll uh, leave things there. That's Keep Your Hands Off Azoken, a really fantastic 12-episode anime series. Like I said, I don't want to spoil anything you know, plot-related, so I don't want to get too deep into what actually happens, but the plot itself isn't like the most important part of this series it's definitely the characters and like the animation and like the plot is there to to support all of that happening but anyway yeah that's that's gonna wrap me up you should definitely go watch keep your hands off azoken it's 12 episodes directed by masaki iwasa at science saru and really i i can't recommend this high enough it is an amazing series and was just a pure joy to watch so thanks for listening Follow my Twitter, I am DocPay for updates. If you liked Docupied, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. All feedback helps. I'll catch you next time.